You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. Lecture 9, the consideration of some objections and replies within the first section of Chapter 2 of Veritatis Splendor. An important part of John Paul II's second chapter is devoted to raising some of the very typical objections that one hears and providing appropriate responses to this idea of the natural moral law that is so central to his position that the natural law in union with the divine law are for human good and are not alienating, not objectifying, not things that alienate a person from himself. Among the objections that are common, and the ones that he deals with here, are first the charge of physicalism or biologism. This is a charge that is raised by some people, especially moral theologians who disagreed with Humane Vitae, that is the uh, Paul VI's encyclical, in which he reaffirmed the Church's stance <clears throat> on the illicitness of any form of contraception. This is a charge they raise against any appeal to nature, as though nature were only biological and didn't pertain to the spirit or the psyche. We'll deal with that in due course. But the name of the first group of objections is biologism or physicalism. A second set of objections goes under the name of historicism and cultural relativism. This is a set of objections against nature that comes from a sense of time and change and the constructed nature of human society. That is, it's the notion that things change so much you can't ever talk about a timeless truth you certainly can't talk about moral norms that are anything more than cultural norms if they're not relative to some smaller group within a culture, perhaps a family or a tribe or maybe just a person. So the second set of objections is relativism and, culture, and uh, cultural relativism and historicism. And then a third set of groups, it doesn't quite have a name, but uh, the John Paul II identifies it in terms of those individuals who sort of promise you by a kind of a an unsubstantiated appeal. They promise you that the future will be different than the past and things will get better. You might call it those who are addicted to the idea of inevitable progress. He doesn't actually use that word or that name, so I'm making up the name, but it's the suggestion that progress is inevitable, just wait a while, why start legislating with moral norms before we've actually had the occasion? I think one sees this especially in the current debates about homosexual marriage, and various other things, claiming it's just a matter of time, it's going to change, it's going to develop, wait it out. One bit of background. It's very interesting to me when I think about John Paul II's respect for the natural law tradition and his own very creative use of the idea. I think it's interesting to review, review for just a minute how it is that the papacy and papal encyclicals came to stress natural law theory so much. As I've indicated before, natural law, the notion of natural law, does originate not with Christians but among the Greeks, Aristotle, Sophocles, the Stoics. It gets picked up in Roman culture and developed a bit. Cicero's development of it in the De Republica is remarkable. 
I think one sees it in the writings of St. Paul, especially in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. It's not a full-blown theory, but he appeals to it, at least Paul does, when he's trying to sort out the, ref the difference between those who are under the Decalogue and those who are somehow ought to know about morality, but they're not under the Decalogue. And so he thinks about it as a law, the natural law, that they really ought to know that they cannot fail to know if they are at all reflective. One could go forward, but in a way the main developer of an idea of natural law is Thomas Aquinas, with his very interesting pulling together of the notion of creation and the Aristotelian notion of nature, as well as doing so with an effort to try to find not just an appeal to faith for the source of morality, but also an appeal to right reason. Thomism has its ups and downs, and this is not the place to discuss all of that. Let me do it in the simplest and most uh, superficial way. After Thomas Aquinas' own passing, in a way Thomism is at its nadir, when nominalism, the notion that there are no natures but only names that we impose on things, rises in the 14th and 15th century. But then Thomism has a return to prominence at the time of the discovery of the Americas and the need on the part of theologians to deal with the indigenous populations of this world. If they are truly human, then they are covered by the natural law like anybody else. If they are not, then perhaps they could be enslaved and be made property of others. And those theologians make a case against slavery on the basis of natural law. In a way, Thomism and natural law theory, and again, rises to the challenge because it gives a reasonable way to make the case by looking at the nature of the being in question and seeing that slavery is intolerable morally given the nature of those who would be enslaved. In the Enlightenment, again, we see Thomism having a decline in its fortunes. It seems not to be the order of the day, but the Enlightenment reasoning, whether the rationalists, the empiricists, or especially Kantianism running to the fore. Curiously, within Catholic circles, Descartes had a kind of prominence, and there were generations that were raised on Cartesianism as if it were sound philosophy. I have grave reservations about that, but I'll save them for another day. Toward the end of the 19th century, and here's the point I really want to get to, toward the end of the 19th century, after the Industrial Revolution, after major social revolutions in Europe, after tremendous numbers of people coming in from the farms into the cities to work in the factories with all the social disruption that that entails, after the political movements, especially associated with a certain brand of political liberalism, questioned the ancien regime and the sometimes unfortunate connection between the church and the aristocracy, there were revolutions in Europe, 1830. 1848, 1870. We eventually saw the loss of the Papal States. My own suspicion is, is that while the Popes didn't initially like the loss of the Papal States, that once they got used to the idea, I think they woke up in the morning saying, thank heavens I don't have to deal with the problems of the Papal States. It took some coming to that. Pope Pius IX, the one under whose papacy the Papal States were definitively lost, became a kind of prisoner of the Vatican. But his successor, Leo XIII, in a way is a hero of this story. Because as a pope who now succeeded 
Pius IX, he was so deeply aware of the need of the large masses of Christians, of people in general, crowded into the cities and the enormous revolution in social order. And he said the church has to make a significant contribution to the understanding of proper social order. He was very alert to this. And he was alert to a theme that I think gets far too little press in discussions of Catholic social teaching. Again, not our main concern here, but let me mention it in a simple way. I would hold in my own voice that authentic Catholic social teaching is from the beginning, from the Gospels, and that it always has three areas of focus. I think that Catholic social teaching always has an economic consideration. I think it always has a political consideration. But thirdly, it always has a familial and cultural focus. And that those three need to be interwoven. There is a concern if you do something in the economic order, it will have impact upon the familial and cultural order, and so on with the other relationships. In the various documents that the church issued in the course of history, there often tended to be focus on just one or on just another in order to deal with it. But I don't think it ever meant that the issues were to be treated in isolation. As long as there was a Christendom, that is, a Christian society that was also a juridical order, where there were Christian emperors and Christian kings and Christian princes and Christian dukes, presume it went down to the level of Christian dog catchers. As long as there was a juridical Christendom, you could do social policy in the way that authority can do it. But with the end of Christendom as a juridical entity in the 19th century and the rise of liberal states, secular states, no longer could you enact Christian social theory by fiat or by authority. So what Leo XIII did was to begin the articulation of Catholic social teaching, which had been from the time of the Gospels, to enact it and to articulate it in the encyclical form, trying to combine faith and reason, trying to show what Revelation said about social theory, trying to show what reason says about social theory. And interestingly, when Leo does this in his great encyclical, Rerum Novarum, 1891, which is often thought of as the beginning of Catholic social teaching, but falsely, because Catholic social teaching comes from the Gospels. It is one of the first major papal encyclicals on the subject, but not even the first in that tradition. He does a wonderful job, and each pope thereafter has in some way contributed to the articulation of Catholic social teaching. One thinks of John Paul II, whose this works we are discussing, and his own contributions in Labrum Exercem on the dignity of the worker. Solicitudo Rei Socialis, which is a kind of corrective to the encyclical Populorum Progressio by Paul VI, a little more realistic sense of what human development means. And then Centesimus Annus, after the fall of communism, and now trying to set a direction for especially the West, but for all the world, with respect to how social theory ought to be organized. In doing all of that, it begins with Leo XIII. And here's, here's the story. In order to give people time to get the natural law theory up to speed, particularly to give moral theologians, like the ones we're talking about, the opportunity because they hadn't been studying it. They had been Cartesians. They had been something else. In order to give them the time, Leo's first encyclical in 1879 is called Eterni Patris. 
And it's a call for the rediscovery of Christian philosophy, scholastic, neo-scholastic philosophy in general, a certain pride of place to Thomism, not that it's the only game in town, but a 10-year lead time, getting people used to reading Thomas Aquinas' texts again, and to thinking in terms of his categories about the integration of creation and nature, thinking about his category of natural law. I, I really do believe that Leo had it in mind to articulate Catholic social teaching in terms of natural law, but as a good teacher, he gave a good 10 years lead time for the introduction and deepening of the idea before he would use it. And then, even before he wrote Rerum Novarum on economic matters in 1891, he had produced some eight encyclicals on political aspects of Catholic social teaching, perhaps a bit less known, but interestingly, a number of them quoted in Veritatis Splendor attributing to Leo the genius of seeing the need for this concern with natural law as the most plausible vehicle for the communication of the Catholic vision in terms that the world can understand. Nature, the norms of nature, the powers of reason to discover the norms of nature, always seen against the backdrop of the divine creation of nature, and hence the divine source of the authority and obligation that natural law entails. With that as background, and this homage to Leo XIII, John Paul II, who writes Centesimus Annus in 1991, filling out a 100th anniversary of Rerum Novarum in 1891, and with due respect for what the accomplishments of his predecessors, just as Leo XIII had to deal with socialism and communism and evolutionism and various other phenomena that he had noticed and that prompted Rerum Novarum, John Paul II undertakes a review of the attacks on natural law in our own day. He begins with the notions that emerge in the time of the Renaissance and the Reformation, these deep concerns about whether nature can ever be normative, and the inclination ever since the Renaissance, but particularly prominent in the Enlightenment, to think of freedom and law as necessarily in conflict, whether it be the utterly deterministic investigations of the physical sciences, the other efforts at the objectification of human nature, the exaltations of technological progress, all done in company with a certain enlightenment brand of political liberalism. So on the one hand, what you have are claims that subject humankind entirely to nature, to determinism, and really question whether there is freedom but then, in a split personality kind of way, taking the Cartesian division between nature and reason, taking the Kantian division between the order of phenomena and the order of the practical reason within us, these utter dichotomies, these almost schizophrenic divisions, suggesting that nothing in the realm of nature can be free, the only thing that can be free is in the realm of the mind, and the only way to keep the realm of the mind and the realm of the will free is not to let it be ruled by nature. One sees in paragraph 46 an elaborate account of the historical roots of the objections to natural law that go by the name of physicalism and biologism. Those are, in particular, the names of 20th century objections, namely the claim that you should never try to present as a valid moral law that is universal in character, what is merely a biological law. 
following, I think, on this Cartesianism and this Kantianism that had infected Catholic moral theology, the notion is, well, maybe our bodies are necessitated. Maybe nature does determine our biochemistry. Maybe at the realm of nature there are certain things that we just can't do anything about. Theologians infected with this Cartesianism and with this Kantianism wanted to say, but the place that we are free is in the mind. And what we need to do is to be creative in our solutions, finding solutions to the nasty consequences of our nature when our nature cannot be controlled, and instead devising the kind of solutions that will, by a determination of our reason, now reassess what a moral norm is. One sees the attack in earnest begin after the publication of Humanae Vitae. Now here too, if I stop and pause for just a minute and an aside, it is only because of the tremendous importance that John Paul II, as the young Karl Wojtyla, the bishop in Krakow, had in the discussions at the Second Vatican Council and then in communications with Pope Paul VI that urged him and that supported, John, uh, supported Paul VI in issuing Humanae Vitae. John, uh, Karl Wojtyla would develop his own magnificent defense of humane vitae, thinking about the ways in which the unitive meaning of marriage and the procreative meaning of marriage cannot be torn apart without ripping apart the very fabric of marriage, how these are different but nonetheless inseparable factors and meanings that must be always appreciated. He talks about the language of the body and his whole development of a development of the theology of the body in a way, is a very contemporary, fascinating way of doing natural law. But notice, when John Paul, in the theology of the body, or in his own defense of Humanae Vitae, or in this particular encyclical that we are studying, when he undertakes this, what he is very, very strongly doing is suggesting nature isn't only the province of the body. When we deal with human nature adequately considered, what we also have to consider is the nature of our soul, the nature of our mind, the nature of our will, the nature of our emotions, the nature of our choices, the whole nine yards. That is, there is a sense in which, a proper sense in which, nature adequately considered isn't just the realm of the biological, isn't just the realm of the physical, and so John Paul's response here to the biologists, the biologist objection, the, excuse me, the biologicism objection and the physicalism objection, his response to it is to say that the nature that we are concerned about is not simply the nature of our physical bodies. It includes the nature of our physical bodies, but it is the nature of us human beings as persons. Now, sometimes in the contemporary debates, I've gosh, been involved in many of these, there will be individuals who so want an answer on the acceptability of abortion or the acceptability of contraception or the acceptability of euthanasia. They will so want an answer about its acceptability that they are very quick to leap on the bandwagon. Every human being is determined by one's physiological, biochemical, genetic disposition but that persons are not coincident with human beings, that persons require functioning intellect, that persons require a certain level of functionality at the intelligence. 
John Paul II tries to give the lie to that by insisting that every human being is a person, a person at some stage of development, some stage of the unfolding of the powers of intellect and the powers of will. And that even later in life, when the powers of intellect and the powers of will are compromised, when they are in some way disabled, when either by illness or by accident or by old age or whatever the cause, even then, human beings, so far as they are still alive as persons, the position that he takes, for which I think there is good reason, is that there is no human being who is not a person, that our very nature is a personal nature, that hopefully this will unfold according to the natural patterns of development in ways that we will be able to make full use of them. It's why we need to give women great care during the time of their pregnancies, as well as to give their children who are developing all of the advantages of good nutrition. It's why we need to take care of young and developing children and to provide them with adequate nutrition and adequate time for rest and for real education, and so on. That is, our concern in real charity and in real solidarity means that we must help with the unfolding of these traits that we associate with the mature. But we should not define persons only by functional ability. And that part of what John Paul II is wrestling with here is this inclination to treat only the sphere of freedom and intelligence and decision with the personal and to think of the body as a realm of the natural. There is a Manichaean split there. There is a Cartesian split that must be healed, that must be addressed. And you will find his efforts to do so there at paragraph 47. In paragraph 48, he turns to the related question about the relationship between freedom and nature, that is, in focusing us on a proper understanding of the natural moral law. He identifies not only these Cartesian and Manichaean splits, but he also in attacks the Enlightenment splits, that is, the notion that freedom and law are at opposition, and that freedom and nature are at opposition. Because those inclinations on the part of enlightenment, utilitarian, pragmatic, various kinds of thinking associated in that dimension, very frequently they see the human body as if it were mere raw material. One of the articles that I'd love to write someday, I have the title of it, though I haven't written the article, is Even Plastic Snaps. The notion that things are perfectly able to be changed and manipulated at one's leisure. I think that it is fairly obvious that the human being is a kind of plastic sort of thing that can bend. We have so much more flexibility. But even plastic snaps at a certain point. And what one has to do is to know what human nature is, what its limits are, and what its potentialities and its powers are, and that that healthy respect will give us a respect for the nature of persons and not think of the human body as merely raw material. It is from this reason that I believe that John Paul II spent so much time articulating a theology of the body, because he is quite convinced that the body is not just raw material to be used as we like or as far as we can, dealing with the consequences as best we're able, but rather that the body has a meaning already in its bodiliness, and that there are moral values that are written into it by God. When one thinks of the beautiful things that he says, for instance, about spousal love, and the ways in which true spousal love respects the meaning of one another's bodies, and starts to bring out, bring out together the love and the charity that marriage is designed to 
live for a couple, one sees the way in which there is a proper use of freedom rather than an arbitrary use of freedom for reconfiguring things according to one's own preferences and designs. John Paul also makes the point here and in subsequent chapters, and I think it's absolutely right, freedom can't be thought of apart from the body because no act of our freedom can ever be realized without a body. I mean, imagine if you were to think of just your mind as the center of freedom, but you couldn't ever enact it. If you said, I want to go and get an education, but couldn't ever go and study. Or if you wanted to find something delightful to make as a dinner for someone else. I think of the beauties of, for instance, of the film Babette's Feast, and the way in which she uses even the humble activities of making dinner as a way in charity to win over those who had grown cold in their bitterness. If one wanted to make any particular free choice, go ahead and do it, but don't involve the body. And one would see that the choice that one is allegedly making is pretty empty. It's a matter sometimes of using the body. It's a matter of sometimes of refusing to use the body and holding fast against certain inclinations or against certain pressures, because our freedom does come from that power which is within the mind, but it is expressed in how we choose to use the body this way or that, whether to use the body at all or to choose to refrain from using the body. And even the choices when we choose not to do something are bodily choices. Our bodies are the way in which our freedom is expressed. And Pope John Paul II at great length develops that notion that is precisely in the body that our freedom finds its actualization. He will be very much the theologian of the human act. We will consider more of that when we get to section 4 of chapter 2. Here his concern is to repudiate the objections that have been made to natural law, and especially to those utilitarian objections which amount to try to calculate morality by merely cons calculating consequences and values. Sometimes the theologians of that persuasion have tried to suggest that nothing has any moral value until we make a choice of it. And so that what they like to do is to count up the pre-moral goods and the pre-moral evils, and then to think that morality will simply be a matter of calculating consequences. What John Paul II insists instead, and you find his elaborate reply to that notion that you could, in a utilitarian system, simply calculate the pre-moral goods and the pre-moral values, is to suggest that the only freedom worthy of its name is the freedom of a human person, the freedom of an embodied human person who knows the truth about the body as well as the truth about the psyche, and uses this knowledge of human nature to understand what its purpose is, what its destiny is, what its possibilities, what it is for which God has designed it, and that in doing so, one will have a much healthier, more mature, more complete sense of freedom. It's no surprise that in responding to these various objections, as I named them at the beginning of the lecture, that he makes such a strong case here toward the end of the first section of chapter 2 about the unity of the person as body and soul. From the very beginning with Plato, one had that tendency to think of the person as purely the soul inhabiting the body, maybe being enchained in the body as a prison. With Descartes, one has this radical split between thinking substance and extended substance. With Kant, there is an inclination to do the same and to think about only the mind and its self-legislative capacities as the real seat of value and dignity and autonomy. 
but the world that is extended, the world that is physical, the world of natures, can't thought that at best we could approximate those things. We can't ever really know them, let alone use them to get to a knowledge of our creator. With figures like Locke and Barclay and Hume, the self progressively disappears into the mere realm of appearances. My point is not to go simply on an untutored survey of the history of modern philosophy, but for all the good that it did in calling attention to some things, it did many things which tended to eviscerate a healthy knowledge of nature. So what do we do instead? Beginning at paragraph 49 and continuing into paragraph 50, what we focus in is on the good cholesterol sense of the natural law and the good cholesterol sense of what freedom in relation to that law is. Namely, that the natural law refers not just to things at the biological level or at the physical level, but refers to a rational order that is created by the creator and implanted within us for us to discover so that once discovering it, we can use it to order our life and our actions, the actions of our bodies and the actions of our minds. There is, indeed, in a very deep sense, the roots of human dignity here. Human dignity is made in God's image and likeness with a power of reason that pervades the whole of the person and the real unity of our existence. At paragraph 51, Pope John Paul II again quotes a line of scripture, and he does so in the effort to try to remind us of where to get moral wisdom. He quotes from Matthew chapter 19, verse 8, from the beginning it was not so. That, of course, is from the famous dialogue that Jesus has with the Pharisees about the inappropriateness morally of divorce and remarriage, that Moses had allowed it to the people because of the hardness of their hearts, but from the beginning it was not so. And he reminds us that what we do when we consider the natural law is we look to the truths about the way God made us, both to the positive precepts that apply to everyone in the whole of the earth. Because of the nature we have, there are certain things we must do, like honor parents, like obey God and worship him. But there are also certain things we must never do, those universal negative norms, things like transgressing against innocent life transgressing against the bonds of marriage, transgressing against the rights of property, transgressing against a person's good name. All of these negative precepts that are in the natural law that are the sum and substance of many of the precepts of the second tablet of the divine law, that all these things mentioned in the divine law and the Decalogue are confirmed by Jesus and are able to be known by us in the natural law because these negative precepts name intrinsically evil things, things that can never be brought in any way to serve the dignity of the person, things to which we must give witness by the way in which we respect them and hold ourselves off from the crimes that they name. This gives us the minimal sense of freedom that Augustine had already identified and that John Paul II quoted back in paragraph 13, and allow us to grow toward that healthy and mature freedom to which the Lord calls us. In the next lecture, we will turn to the question of conscience, and I think we'll be able to treat it a little more briefly because of the elaborate discussion we've had about freedom and nature here in the first section of chapter 2. The second section gives us a sense of the Pope's teaching on conscience and reminds us again about a good cholesterol and a bad cholesterol situation, and we'll see that next time. 
We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.